This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion today is not tied to the offer of sale and investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Really, uh, last week we previewed this show. What a big week for the markets, the economy. We've got lots to talk about. We've got Fed chair, new Fed chair. We've got economic data. We've got tax blueprints. Uh, Professor, I know you were gearing up for this week. Uh, we got you for a few minutes of commentary. What's your take on all, all the big news this week? Well, yeah, well, first of all, we had the as expected. I mean, there was uh, no question that Jay Powell was, uh, you know, uh, number one in all the betting markets, and he and he certainly has taken that position. Um, I, have, you know, I still express reservations that uh, he's the first Fed chief since G. William Miller under Carter that has not had either a graduate or undergraduate degree in it, and that last one lasted one year before they kicked him out. Now, uh, Jerome Powell Powell is much better than that. Um, And let's just hope there's no crisis, because I don't really think he's a leader. But he's a follower, and the other people are good, and, um, you know, we're going to await the the vice chair choice, uh, which I think uh, now that chair is positioned, Trump will make within the next month. So it's it's steady. I mean, he's never dissented, uh, basically yelling in a Republican (laughs) package uh, more than anything else. Um, uh, You know, so now we have the uh, the, and the GOP tax came to one day late, but it did come. Uh, I actually like it. I think a lot of very good position. Of course, everyone's taking pot shots at it. uh, my personal preference was they should have done the corporate alone rather than corporate and individual. But most of the flack is going to be on the individual side, and that might shoot it down. Much more controversial on the on the business side. There wasn't that much that was controversial, although there were wonderful reforms. I thought that were made in there. Now whether they can separate it out, um, maybe do a skinny package like they tried to do for health care at the end when they couldn't get the whole thing. I mean, we're, we yet to see. I mean, that's still, a, you know, a work in progress. And, the, uh, you know, it's gotten the typical attack from the Democrats and the left. Um, but we'll see if it can garner uh, some support there. Uh, I actually think it's a, a fairly good tax bill. Employment report today was a surprise to see the unemployment rate go down again, 41 Wow. Way. And yet no inflation and no increase in wages. Now, part of that is hurricane related because lower income workers were the ones that were actually you know, coming back. Um, but even then, uh, there, you know, the Phillips curve, the famous Phillips curve, trade off in unemployment and inflation. We just have a totally flat curve. It, unemployment keeps on going down. No inflation. Uh, the the unemployment rate will definitely mean the Fed will tighten in December, but uh, what happens in 2018, really no one knows. It really depends on whether we see inflation finally go up. And um, 
Uh, certainly not on the we, – we're seeing oil prices, mid-50s, 60s on Brent. Some commodity prices are going up, but wages are still very, very sluggish. So uh, we'll wait on that. Otherwise, Apple did great earnings. Earnings are coming in great on, on third quarter. Fourth quarter looks good starting out, and so we're still in a bullish mode. Now, we, we started to see some more of the economic data, and I know one of the big picture conversations has been productivity. Uh, I believe the latest productivity print was, was 3%. Is that yeah, you know, more in the positive number that oh, you've been yeah, thinking that about? Was a blowout. That was a blowout, too. I mean, the market was expecting 2.6. Uh, and um, now, quarter to quarter, it's volatile. But we there are signs that we may have ramped up productivity. Um and we could talk about the reason. Some of it may be less regulation. It's definitely been lighter regulation under Trump, and that is definitely pro-productivity growth. We'll need a couple more quarters to really get the definitive uh, look at this. But, yes, that productivity number uh, was very, very good news. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right to bring that up, Jeremy, too. Uh, certainly as an economic underpinning of an accelerating economy, we need productivity growth. Uh, to rebound. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're following the Atlanta GDP tracker now, um, but the uh, sort of the GDP tracker now from Atlanta is, is in like the four and a half percent range. I mean, do you think that is just something? I think they just lowered it a, a little bit today. I, oh. First of all, I think <laughs> I, I think they're very way too volatile. I, I like to follow macro advisors. Okay. They've been generally the best. Uh, they're, and, 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 I, and J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, uh, they they put third quarter is inching up from the original three percent to three uh, two three three right um, and most of the people for this fourth quarter and don't forget we just finished only one month are in the high twos so uh, there's been a lot of inventory build in that third quarter and some people are a little worried that that might slow down production in the fourth quarter but with the stock market going up and consumer sentiment being so high. All that inventory could just be picked up by the by the consumer in a very strong uh, Christmas season. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, another three percent plus GDP growth in uh, in this quarter is is a definite possibility. Very good. Um, any things on the tax side that you were you know you're you're sort of worried about? I mean, the the, the concept of being able to file your taxes on a postcard, you know, the uh, that <laughs> ideal always sounds attractive to me. Um, you yeah. know, but and then they have all these deductions they're trying to get rid of the state and locals, well, the mortgages. Yeah, you don't forget the doubling of the standard deduction eliminates millions of of, of itemized returns. Just that, even if they didn't change it. And now, of course, they're they're limiting you know the property tax to 10,000 uh, interest income only to size mortgage of a half a million. And these, uh, you, you know, are, are things, you know, I mean, it's not as clean. I mean, I, I would like to eliminate all the deductions to flatten the tax rate uh, a lot more. But, uh, you know, it goes part of the way towards uh, towards doing that. You know, the question really is they do eliminate state and local tax deduction allow only 10,000 for property taxes. People, the, the Republicans in New York are not going to be happy, uh, and maybe the few that are in California are not going to be happy. Uh, the question is, can they be convinced for the better of the country to let's let's try to move in that direction or not? And and then you know they'll we'll, we'll see the playbook on that as uh, as the weeks go on. Well, very good, Professor. I know you're traveling in Washington D.C. Yeah. here today. Thanks for joining us for a few minutes. Thank you very much. 
Uh, we're going to have a, a great conversation with uh, you know two economists. The first uh, first part of the conversation, we continue this this focus on the economy, on on tax policy, and just the view of the economy is Constance Hunter. She's the chief economist of KPMG. I got to know Constance uh, earlier this year on a, on a trip to Maine. Constance, welcome to our program. So great to be here, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Doing great. Um, what an interesting week. A lot going on to for to be for an economist. It's got to be one of your, you know, hot weeks in terms of a lot of different things coming out with with the markets. Um, any or, or in the economy? Any any reflection on just what you saw this week from either today's reports or the tax policies, the Fed? Uh, lots of updates. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd start at the beginning of the week with the productivity uh, report, which was um, higher than expected, of course, because GDP was higher than expected in the uh, third quarter. And, uh, and, and this is a good sign. We've been expecting productivity to turn around a little bit. Um, as I, as I always say, I go out and I meet with our clients. I meet with CEOs. I meet with boards of directors. And to a person, I have never met with a management team that's not trying to improve productivity, right? And so when you have that happening on a concentrated basis in every single company across the country and really across the world, it stands to reason that eventually you're going to see some fruits of that effort and you're going to see some productivity gains. Yeah. And we started to see that. And, and we can get into, if you like, all the technical aspects of the way the productivity is measured. And, and now with everything as a service, for example, a lot of, a lot of things that were counted in, as investments are now counted as service purchases. So like cloud computing and this sort of thing. And, um, and this is a big part of where companies are spending on things that are going to improve their productivity. But if that's no longer counted as investment, it, it, it's a different type of GDP calculation. And so, so this impacts uh, the productivity numbers as well. I think there's a good case that we're understating them to to a good extent. No, no, that's one of the biggest issues of the day. And and I mean, now we got this one big print uh, this week, but you know, before that, we've been the average over the last few years have been sort of really subpar. And when you think about the long term growth rates of the economy and and productivity being one of the the key driver, you know, addition to just how many people you have working, which we know has generally been sort of at slower growth rates than historical. Um, the question in terms of what is the proper real rate for the Fed to focus on t- comes back to this productivity number. So uh, what's your sense of, you know, the long-term averages, the real long-term averages tend to be about 2%. Where do you th- Yeah, I have 50-year averages at 1.8, so splitting hairs, but yes, yeah, about 2%. Close to 2. Where do you see the future, I mean, and compared to just the recent past um, where we were almost going for zero for a while and now we're sort of taking a, a little bit up, but what, what do you see and how much is the measurement a real drag? I mean, how much do you think measurement's biasing things? What's, what's, what do you think the story is? So in order to answer that, I need to, to go back and look at, um, uh, look, at GD, look at productivity over the last several decades. And it has, it's always lumpy, right? It, it goes in peaks and then troughs and peaks and troughs. And um, if we look at uh, a measure of labor scarcity that uses the um, survey from the National Federation of Independent Business, and we plot that on a graph alongside productivity, and then we lag productivity by three years. What we notice is that as labor markets get tighter, as there's more scarcity of labor, you tend to see a pickup in productivity, which uh, implies that um, this idea that necessity is the mother of invention is a factor in productivity. Now, the academic research is very split on this, 
But when I go again and talk to CEOs and talk to, to boards of directors and say, well, when do you implement more capital over labor? A lot of times they will say, yes, it's when we need labor-saving technology. So uh, there's a professor out of, out of MIT, Dan Asimoglu, who's done some work on this. And his research shows that when there is a shortage of labor, we do see improvements in productivity um, that's labor-saving technology. Very interesting. And so, yeah. and that's so unemployment reports. Unemployment's coming down. We keep, are we getting to that place where labor scarcity is going to really be that mother of invention here? And well, it's fascinating because while we're while we're hearing reports of labor scarcity, we are not seeing it in the wage data. So there's some disconnect there, and it could be just a lag. But I think this is one of the things that has perplexed the Fed. Um, is this complete flattening of the Phillips curve and this relationship between wages and, and inflation. And and I would say that, that we, we have to wait and see. Now, uh, any day now, I'm expecting you know wages to pick up. We didn't see that in the most recent report. In fact, wages fell from a 2.9% rate to about a 2.5% rate on a year-over-year basis. Um, you know, any month they can be they can be a little volatile. They're certainly up on average from last year, and I would expect next year we'll see wage increases that are closer to the three percent level, and that probably would induce companies to start doing labor-saving technology. And this is a combination of of two things. One, you'll get to a point in certain industries where you literally can't find an employee at any price. Right, and then in in some cases the price will just become too prohibitive. Now there are certain sectors where that which is not going to be possible. Where you're not going to get uh, there, there either isn't technology there. So there's certain areas where there's labor shortages. For example, within healthcare, where it's very difficult to do labor saving technology, and they're probably just going to have to increase wages. Uh, but there's other areas in health, like so. One of the areas in healthcare where what would be very difficult would be sort of physical therapy, occupational therapy. You're you're not going to be able probably to get too many labor-saving technologies there. But in something like radiology and reading films, there's a huge advent of artificial intelligence that is much faster at at reading uh, reading these these radiology films than doctors, and really assist them in getting through much more uh, high volume of diagnosis in a faster in a faster pace. Yeah, I mean I remember going back to January, we had a uh, you know former Wharton Dean and now Philadelphia Fed president Patrick Harker on the program. It was actually our first podcast this year that we did with Pat Harker and he was talking about how in his district just the healthcare Cost the that that wage growth in that he's seeing in the Philly area is like eight to ten percent in the last few years, and so he was he was on the more hawkish side earlier this year, uh, given some of those anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you just haven't seen that, you know, as a firm, how as a whole sort of overall economy. Do you think some of that's compositional that we have sort of demographics, the old people making more money, sort of sort of dripping off, and young people coming in, and so there's this compositional effect that the whole wage growth isn't picking up at that for certain people it is? So since this is radio, I'm going to describe what I'm doing right now. I'm <laughs> sitting here nodding my head nice. because, because, yes, this is, this is a really interesting phenomenon. And normally we don't have these huge bumps in demographics having such an outsized impact. And now we are in, in a time where that is having a huge outsized impact. And it's, it's one of the reasons I think that the economy has continued to do well. We've continued to add jobs. I mean, think about it. Now that the, the, the um, uh, September jobs data has been revised, um, right, we, we're looking at a situation where we're now at 85 consecutive months of jobs growth. 
that is the longest of any stretch post-war by over 50%. Yeah. Um, but but we're not we're not seeing a big increase in wages, and, and we look at just sort of the different types of wages, right? The different types of of jobs. Um, I just put a, a graph out on Twitter um, in in response to to one of the tweets that you guys put out about um, about my being on the program, which shows the share of of each job, um, the year over year wage in that job, uh, the total average. Uh, increase. And then on the far right-hand side, it shows the average hourly wage for that particular job category. So it's a lot of data packed into one chart. And what you see is the big categories uh, like professional services, education, and health. Um, you know, they're, they're above average income, but they're certainly not seeing big wage gains. And then you look at something like leisure and hospitality, where the hourly wage is only $15.56. And yes, they're seeing a big, uh, a bigger gain in wages, close to three percent. But they're starting from a very low base. And so, that, since you just talked about your Twitter handle, we might as well reintroduce you. Where to find you? Uh, we're talking with Constance Hunter. She's the chief economist of KPMG on Twitter. She's at Constance Hunter, and so you can follow her, find her charts, her economic views there. Um, maybe we could back up a little bit, Constance, and just talk about at KPMG for the chief economist role, maybe talk about just how you got to KPMG, what you focus on there, and sort of what you're trying to bring from a unique perspective as an economist to, to clients of KPMG. Sure. So um, I was very fortunate to have a career in asset management before joining KPMG and using economics to make investment decisions. And uh, I was at a client of KPMG's, and they asked me to speak at a conference. And so uh, I got to know some people at KPMG. And over the course of, of a year, we had some discussions, and they realized they didn't have a macro uh, a chief economist, sort of a macroeconomist person here to to talk to clients, to help advise the firm internally on various things um, strategically. And so that's how I got here. And it was, a, it was a great opportunity for me to really focus on the real economy again. And what's great is, is when I go meet with our clients, chances are I've owned either their equity or their fixed income. So uh, I, have a, I have a knowledge of the companies that comes from an investor mindset. And so it's a, it's a very applied macroeconomics approach. And it allows us to have conversations with our clients that are a little bit different and that brings a differentiator in the marketplace. But I also work closely with, with many of our different businesses. Uh, for example, we have a huge uh, what we call people and change practice where we help companies manage all of the digital disruption and how it impacts their workforce in a way that really focuses on how do you redeploy people and get the most out of them and use technology as an augmentation of your human workforce rather than necessarily just a replacement of your human workforce. We have um, a whole digital labor, uh, 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 intelligent automation area, and I work closely with them. We're, we're doing some analysis on the workforce of the future and trying to make some improvements on some of the research that's been done already. So by people like Frey and Osborne at Oxford, that big study that came out a couple of years ago with the, with the very bold headline that said 50% of the U.S. labor force 
forest would be gone by 2025. Yep. Um, and then, then, then there's some work that's been done subsequently by the OECD, which focuses on task level data. And, and their numbers are much more like 10 to 15 percent of the workforce by 2025. Yeah, I was just going to you must have been just reading my mind because as you started talking about this efforts to disrupt, I was just starting to think about now how much of our workforce is going to be replaced. Is it, do you have a pessimistic view, optimistic view? How do you think people are going to get retrained in terms of the right jobs? And you know, just what's your view on, on robots replacing all of us? So I think there's a macro approach to this and a micro approach to this. So on the micro level, there are going to be individual uh, jobs, people that are going to be disrupted, that are going to have a difficult time, either because of their own personal orientation towards pivoting to something new. Um, some people are more suited to that but temperamentally and skills-wise than other people. So for those people that are not able to pivot for whatever reason. They don't have the support. They don't have the mindset. They don't have the, the skills or the temperament to do that. This is going to be a, a tough transition for them. But if we look at the macro economy as a whole, um, certainly this is an exciting time. And if we look historically, any time that we have been able to increase productivity, uh, we have generated more wealth, and that has resulted in higher standards of living and more job opportunities. New jobs keep getting, getting invented every year. Right? So when the BLS does its job categorization, if you go back over the decades, you see more and more categories getting added as we start inventing things for people to do. So this fear that we, we're going to be automated out of jobs is is long-standing. Um, I tell this story a lot. Um, in in the mid-60s, uh, President Johnson uh, called this convention or called this, this uh, meeting of economists to, to a working group to study a very pernicious problem in the U.S. economy. And it was the problem of too much productivity. Hmm. We were growing at 2.6%. What were we going to do? There weren't going to be any jobs. And if you look at the story of the last 150 to 100 years of employment, basically, as we have gotten more productive, as we've gotten wealthier, people work fewer hours. So there are a few of us that are, that are in very demanding jobs where we're working many hours a week. But most people, the average hourly work week is about 35 hours. Um, actually, it's probably it's a little less. I can get you the exact data from today's report. But, but what you see is that working hours went from about 80 hours a week down to this 34, 35 hours a week. It's very possible that as we improve productivity and have this per, and 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 have this technological advancement, maybe our working hours will fall to 30 hours a week. Right? People this make is, fun of the uh, the Europeans and the French for not wanting to work so much, but maybe that's our future. Is that we just have less need? We're all going to be a little bit more productive. Have to work a little bit less hours. What's so bad with that? Well, it's great if it's driven by market forces and it's a result of efficiency. I think yeah. the the issue with France is that it's it's driven by uh, not government ability. mandate. So so there's a there's a small small quibble there. Although certainly. Uh, uh, I think people uh, are enjoying more leisure time, and and if you look at the utility of all of the technology that we have in our personal devices, for example, that certainly improves um, consumer well-being. Um, it doesn't necessarily get factored into GDP, but when you think about what we carry around in our hands nowadays with smartphones, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. 
Yeah. No. So it's it's interesting. So do you, do you have when you think about who's uh, and I I know our listeners on the program here are maybe the most adaptable. They're the most in tunes with technology and and they're already plugged in. So maybe they're not the the most susceptible to the retraining and and sort of where the disruption is going to leave them without the new skill set. Um, but where do you see you know the biggest issues for? Um, I mean, where 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 do you see that? And just from your perspective of consulting with companies, I mean, where where are they where are they really focus in terms of getting leveraging this technology impact the most? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that they're looking at is is really what are they doing with their data? How well organized is their data? How secure is their data? Right, because data security is a huge issue, right? So um, so thinking about the security of the data, and then thinking about how they're going to use it, right? So so that's that's one of the big issues that we're working on with our clients. And I would say, just generally, the way this tends to break down. And what we're seeing in the data is this divide between routine and non-routine work. So if your work is routine, and it really doesn't matter if it is uh, cognitive work or manual work, if it is routine, it is susceptible to automation. And so it's really training people to do more non-routine work and letting the uh, technology do the routine work. Yeah. So it has the potential to make work much more interesting, much more varied, um, and much more exciting for people. Um, and so do you, do you have any, are you, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about specific company examples, but do you have any sort of case studies you think of I, who's really doing something very well in, in all these fronts? Well, I can't talk about, um, well, I said there's one specific example I could talk about. It's actually on our website, and oh, it's, it's we did some work with Standard Arrow. And we, we basically um, put their entire people process into the cloud. Um, and so it enabled the team to revisit and challenge their early assumptions and, and really um, work through the project. We have uh, different ignition centers around the country. So this particular project worked with our ignition center in Denver. And what they were able to do was set up a pilot environment where the client team could explore the capabilities, um, identify gaps, run it in parallel with their with their system and really be able to implement uh, this more seamlessly, but also in a way that, that really allowed their people to, to get the most out of it and to participate in it alongside of, of our consultants that were helping them do this. Very good. Uh, now, so you, you mentioned before KPMG, you were at an asset management firm. How do you see, you know, sort of as an investor side, I mean, how do you think people should be using macro? You know, there's sort of always this this commentary and working with Professor Siegel, he would talk about, well, GDP growth is not investor return. You could say you have this fasting growing country. Does it really matter? It may actually be the worst return depending on valuations. But how do you think people should apply macro to the investment world, where do you see people going wrong in applying sort of your trade as an economist to their investment decisions? How much time do I have? We got three minutes. <laughs> well, maybe five. So there are a lot of components. So headline GDP is noisy, right? So if you're just and and over the long term, of course, GDP is one of the determinants of equity market beta. Right? This yeah. is why people want to invest in emerging markets. They want to have a higher emerging market allocation because these are faster-growing markets and you're going to have faster return, right? Um, so, so certainly um, it's, it's something that's considered worthwhile. But 
in terms of, of how you're going to apply it for, for a, a G7 or developed economy, you're going to look at a bunch of different things. So, so we look at things like final sales to domestic purchasers, right, which is, which is the, um, the purchases of households and businesses and, and, how, and what the trend is there. We're looking at different components of GDP. We're looking at what's going on in residential construction, for example. So right now what we've seen is we've seen two quarters of decline in residential construction investment. This is something now I'm going to delve down into all of the housing data um, because it, this has been a bright spot over the last several years. It's one of the areas where we have labor shortages, right? We see that in the survey data on construction. Uh, so it's one area where it's, it's a red flag for me to say, okay, could this be a source of the next recession? And I don't mean in the way that it was in the, in the previous recession where we had a clear bubble in the housing sector, but I mean it as an engine of growth, right? Is there, is there something going on here? And then that would lead me to, to make macro decisions about a whole host of different businesses related to construction. Yeah. So maybe on that final point, since you, you brought up the re- the recession word, um, you know what what's going to be the trigger to you to I mean when you think about it, the big falls in the market, recessions, dropping earnings, and caused by the recession tends to be the big one. So maybe just sort of closing thought, what's what's going to be your indicator to watch, and, and when do you think that's going to happen? So. You know, there's a saying that Alan Greenspan said that I think is so apt, which is that recessions don't just die of old age. So if we get productivity growth and we get productivity growth picking up, the length of time that we can continue this expansion will become longer. However, if we don't get that or if it doesn't perfectly uh, align with the sectors that are seeing wage or labor shortages, then we're going to have those bottlenecks impact the capacity for firms to grow. And to me, it's labor shortages and increased wages in certain sectors that could tip us into the next recession. That would be an, it, uh, absent any shocks, which, of course, shocks can always tip you into recession. But just looking at business cycle factors, that's the business cycle factor that I'm paying the most attention to. Well, very good. Constance, uh, I appreciate you joining us on our program today. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Constance Hunter. She's the chief economist at KPMG. Great discussion on a very economic-driven week. Second part of the program, we talk with Brian Westbury, who is the chief economist at First Trust Advisors. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. My guest for the next half hour is going to be a return guest, Brian Westbury, the chief economist of First Trust Advisors. Brian's always one of my favorite conversations just on his views on the markets, the economy, on a week like we've had this week where you got tax policy in the focus, Fed in focus. Brian always has some of those colorful comments. Brian, welcome back to our program. Hey, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. I, last time we had you, it was early, I think it was earlier this year, you were on your way to South Korea. I think I just saw your Twitter profile just coming back from South Korea again. So I'm going to want to yes. get into that maybe later in the conversation. But so much uh, has been happening this week. Um, we've been all waiting for tax policy details. We've had the Fed, which has been a continual conversation. Um, maybe I could just start off with your big picture views, what's happening in the U.S. economy, what that translates to market views. I know where you've been one of the more bullish forecasters out there. We're getting you've been right all along and we're getting closer to your targets, but maybe maybe you could sort of give us your your high level views here. 
Sure. So at the beginning of this uh, year, Jeremy, we uh, I, I'm not bragging. I'm just uh, laying. The no, I gave you credit. You've yeah. been right. Yeah, you did. You did. Thank you. And thank you very much for that. So we we said uh, Dow twenty three seven um, and uh, S and P twenty seven hundred were within a percent or two of each of those. Um, and that's a return of about 20%. And we felt that we could get there because we thought um, the market was still undervalued and that earnings were going to grow 10%. And, and not only that, we believe that the economy would accelerate a little bit. Um, and it looks like that's happening. We're going to have one of the best growth rates in the past, uh, in the, in, in the past decade this year. Uh, and and it, it just it seems to me um, and I'll just kind of leave it here that the velocity of money is beginning to pick up that after a bunch of years where it, it, you know people were struggling to to really make commitments I think I think a commit a really uh, a vibrant and committed uh, a set of businesses is out there right now and as a result growth is uh, is picking up wages are picking up jobs have have continued to grow. So uh, this this economy um, uh, looks pretty solid to me. And, and as a result, that's why I think our, our, for, our, our relatively optimistic forecast uh, came true. So now the tough question is, from here, where do we go? Do you have you have you started getting into your your next year forecast? I mean, how do you you know we've got finally tax reform? They're focused on well, tax reform or tax cuts. We'll see what happens. Right. Uh, yes. But do is do you have earnings views for next year? I mean, we've had a lot of good conditions coming for U.S. you know large cap earnings. You had a down dollar that helped earnings. You had just yep. general pickup in global growth. What how how are you starting to think about next year? Yeah. So. I think next year is laying out to be uh, another good, uh, solid year. Um, by the way, I think, you know, we're eight years into this recovery. I, I always say 95% of, uh, of all recessions are caused by the Fed. Uh, I'd, I'd really say 100, but I want to give myself a little out. That was my, uh, that was Econ 201. Always give yourself an out. Um, and, uh, uh, the but but and it's going to take the the Fed at least two years uh, uh, to get interest rates up high enough to to really harm growth. So so I would argue we're going to have the longest recovery uh, ever. Uh, it'll be over ten years long before it's done. And next year's setting up to be a really solid year. We've rolled back regulation. Government spending right now um, is somewhat restrained. It's about it's going to grow about three percent if if you can believe these budget numbers next year which is a little less than the economy's growth rate which means government is shrinking as a share of gdp that's a positive to me uh and then on top of it the tax cuts and i i i think the odds right now i spent uh, some time up on the hill this morning uh the senate is um they they feel pretty optimistic about getting enough votes to pass this the house is pretty much there, so so that tells me it's going to happen, and and I I would argue that could get growth above three percent for uh, 2018, ten percent earnings growth. The market's still fifteen percent undervalued, so I haven't come up with a a, a real forecast, but yeah. I guess my base would be about fifteen percent more growth in the stock market next year. I think is easily doable. Very good. 
Um, so it, it, interesting commentary there that the Fed is likely to cause the next recession or 100 percent of all recessions, which I you know I can see. And a lot of them have. I mean, they've been caused by this inverted yield curve where you get the keep hiking, but the long rate starts saying that ah, you're hiking too much. Um, and then capital starts, you know, they stop lending as much. And that sort of pushes this. You could say what's causing the other. But they, we get the recessions after these inverted yield curves. Right. Do you think um, I mean, we still have so much to see about what the Fed composition is looking at. But we've got Powell now sort of continuation of Yellen. I mean, does it, you think it's going to take two years before they get to an inverted curve? Is that one of the, the things going to what you were just talking about? Yeah, exactly. I, I use a it's a it's a form of the Taylor rule. I, I, I think it's actually you, you can you can do the whole analysis uh, uh, easier than the Taylor rule. And you, if you just look at nominal GDP growth, you know, so so over the past couple of years, and I, I kind of use a moving average. Uh, we've had about two percent real growth. We've had about one and a half percent inflation. Put those together and it's about three and a half percent. And so, and, and, you know, if you look at all the Fed dot plots, they also all have about three, three and a half percent as a normal interest rate. And so uh, typically over history, it's when the Fed gets that the federal funds rate up to that that nominal growth in the economy. That's when the yield curve tends to invert. And, and that's when the Fed's tight. So, yes, I'm what I'm really saying is I think it's going to take the Fed. Uh, uh, two two years to get up to that rate, and if the economy is accelerating a little bit, then they might even have to go to four before we get an mm. inversion. Um, but but yes, uh, it'll take at least three percent to invert the curve, at least. Yep. Uh, maybe a little bit more, and and that would be the signal. Let me uh, tease out my guest next week and see if you have any questions for him. We're going to be talking with uh, St. Louis Fed President uh, of the their. The regional bank there, uh, James Bullard, he's been one of our return guests. He swung from most hawkish at times to now he's got maybe the most dovish dot uh, from one last time I'd seen. Any you know, any view, questions for for Mr. Bullard as he he comes back to our program? Yeah, that's kind of fascinating to me that he swung from the hawk uh, to the bull side or the hawkish uh, to the, the dovish dove side, dove side, um, because. I, I think the evidence is that, uh, that that things are picking up, not just on the labor front, but but even a little bit on the inflation front. My favorite question for Fed officials right now is this: You know, I'm a okay, okay, I'm a I'm a I'm a Friedmanite, if you will. Milton, Uncle yep. Milty, Uncle Milton Friedman was one, was my hero. Uh, I learned from him. I've met him, or I I've met him many times. Um, and and he always said that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And um, and and in, if you think about the Fed, that's really all they control is the amount of money in the economy. And and we've had mission creep at the Fed. You know, they, if you listen to the Fed now, they're they're worried about the stock market. They're worried. You know, they talk about the taper tantrum. They're worried about inequality and wages and job growth and all of these things. Um, and and if and, and and when you listen to some of their speeches, they say quantitative easing, boy, it worked. It raised stocks. It, it lowered unemployment. And then what's in, what I find fascinating is Janet Yellen was asked, well, okay, uh, why is inflation so low? And 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 her answer was, it's a mystery. And and I'm I was amazed at that answer because 
because supposedly the Fed understands how QE affects stocks and unemployment and wages, but they don't know how it affects inflation. And 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 so what we've gone from is is a a pure view of the Fed that that money is inflation to now uh, the Fed is an integral part of economic management, and, and I I just believe that's a big mistake. And I'd love to hear what what. I mean, I, I, I'd like to hear if yeah. Fuller defends that. I'll, I'll sure. channel him for a second, then we'll hear what he says next week. I mean, he he well, he was hawkish, and he thought that they should have been hiking, early, you know, more. Um, and then they didn't hike, and they didn't get inflation. So he he sort of adapted his views and said, we should have. I was saying we should hike more. We didn't get inflation. I would have thought we got wild inflation. We didn't hike so much. And so now he sort of adopted this regime-based view of the world where he's like, we can't really forecast regimes, and we just have to sort of accept the regime we're in, and the regime we're in suggests a rate, rate, you know, basically where we are. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where his dots are today if he thinks the regime is changing to a higher growth regime. Um, But that, that, when we last talked to him, that was, that was his views. Right, yeah. And I, and I, I understand that, that you take what you get. But here we have a Fed with a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. It's never had a balance sheet that's 25 percent of GDP before, even in the Great Depression. You, you go back to the era of Volcker and Greenspan. They didn't do quantitative easing. Uh, in fact, they were holding interest rates pretty high and the economy grew. Um, it was growing three and a half, four percent a year. And now the economy is only growing two. So I would argue that, hey, we've done all this easy money. We've done all this quantitative easing. There's the whole idea of doing QE was to boost demand in the economy, and it didn't work. Um, And and so I think it's time to shrink the size of the Fed and and uh, uh, and and go back to the Volcker Greenspan regime of Fed policy um, because all they've done, I, I call it mission creep. They, they, they have ballooned the, the importance of the Fed. And, and kind of one of the sad things from my perspective, and I really mean that word sad, yeah. our, children, our children are growing up believing that the economy has to be managed by the Federal Reserve, by the government. And from 1776 to 1913, we didn't have a Fed. And, and yet we went from a backwater colony to, to a superpower. We saved the world in World War I. And, and there was no Fed. There was no income tax. And this idea that people on their own can't do these things, I, I think it's sad. I, I, I don't want my kids growing up in that environment where they think only 12 people sitting around in the table in Washington, D.C. Uh, decide whether they have a good life or bad life. Um, <laughs> And 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 so I I I'm I'm st- I think the Fed has way it's overgrown its true mandate its true yeah. purpose we're, we're, and um, let me just reintroduce so, our guest here we're talking with Brian Westbury chief economist first trust advisors um, and so talk about the mission creep of the Fed uh, would you have liked a different chair than Powell um, maybe maybe Mr Taylor would have been a little bit more we don't you know you don't know, when if you get got in place would you have done the Taylor rule and been more aggressive or or sort of less uh, accommodative in the way they've been. Um, any any sense of who else you'd like to see them? He's got a lot of positions to fill. Um, so any anybody who you would like to see on the board that uh, that hasn't been discussed or is being discussed? Yeah, I, I wish I wish he would have picked John Taylor as 
Federal Reserve Board Chairman. Not that Jerome Powell is, uh, I'm not trying to call him evil or bad or terrible. Um, I, I think he will continue raising rates. I think he will continue shrinking the size of the balance sheet. Um, but but I think John Taylor uh, would have created a more humble Fed. Uh, you know, the Taylor rule is all about the, the idea that there is a level of interest rates which isn't uh, accommodative and it's not tight, and that's about where we should be, and then we should let the economy operate on its own. The, the, I, I, I always called it a red herring, this idea that if he became chairman, he would automatically just lift interest rates. And I guess the best way for me to say this is that a new, a new football coach – uh, has more power than a new Fed chair. Um, it, it's a committee, uh, and the, uh, the 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 Fed chair uh, ha- only has one vote. And it it took a decade before Greenspan had you know he then become so powerful and so influential that it was very hard for people to vote against him. But when he first started, he had to build consensus. And, and and so John Taylor would have had to go slow to incorporate the Taylor rule. There's no way he could have done it by fiat. Uh, that's the thing about the Fed chair. It's it's just one vote, and it's and you have to you have you have to win over time uh, by consensus. And um, you know, football coach has more power, but even a football coach can get drummed out if they try to change things too much or take away the owner's favorite quarterback or something right. like that. You know, so the Fed chair is, has got less power than that. Brian, so we I don't always give out our phone number on the show for calls, um, but people can call in at one eight four four Wharton. And I know we have a, a caller on the line, uh, a Wharton grad, Nathan from Silicon Valley, who called in with a question, and we just want to sort of take his question real quick. Nathan, um, you're on the line with Brian Westbury of Chief Economist at First Trust Advisor. With uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Nathan. Hey, uh, I have. Hey, I have. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I have two questions um, in response to some of the uh, things that the guest said. Um, question number one: uh, I think the guest said that he feels like the market is undervalued. Um, I thought the consensus of most people is that the market is pretty highly valued uh, right now. So my first question is, you know, on what basis does he say it's undervalued? Uh, the second question I had, um, and was. He said that he thinks that the economy is doing well or will do well due to regulatory rollback. Um, my question there is, since not that much has been passed in Congress, how much regulatory rollback has actually occurred simply due to executive decisions? And and do we, and, and the larger question would be, do we really understand how regulations affect the, the economy? I mean, obviously, I agree, an aggregate overregulation harm the economy. But do, can we like sort of point to certain regulations and say, oh, this had an effect on this particular uh, market or something? Yeah. OK. Uh, two great questions. So let me just go with the undervalued one. I'm, and we could I, I think you can end up debating in circles about this uh, over and over the way. My model is a, a, a I, I keep it as simple as I possibly can. We use what's called the capitalized profits model. Um, which really what we do is we take economy-wide corporate profits. So I'm not just looking at the S&P profits. Economy-wide, that's put out by the government. I divide those by the 10-year Treasury yield. So so you're discounting using an interest rate. So one thing that a P-E ratio won't always show you is 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 
uh, how the the level of interest rates is impacting things. So 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 the, the so the bottom line is if you use that model today, it says the market is still significantly undervalued. Now, I will also say real quick that with a 2.3% treasury yield, which I personally think is artificially low because of what the Fed has been doing, um, you, it's giving you a higher valuation than you should have. So what I do is I put a 3.5% 10-year yield into the model, and then when I take corporate profits today, adjust them over history for current level of interest rates, it says that the market is still about 15% undervalued. Um, and I, I understand that there's a Schiller PE and there's other uh, ways of looking at market valuation, but that's the one I've used for 30 years plus, um, and I believe it, it works pretty well over time, and so that's why I'm saying that. And you and Siegel are very much aligned on that, using that the reported earnings are, well, they have some distortions, certainly if you look at the CAPE ratio, and he's a big fan of, of using something like that profit to sort of adjust for what's going on. Um, in the problems on the cape ratio, so that's that's a good little background. But I, I also wanted to echo his, Nathan's conversation when I when you were talking about regulation. I was curious how you even measure that we've you know we've talked about regulation uh, sort of the decrease or how you even measure that reg- regulation is is on its way down. Yeah, sure. So there's uh, and I'll keep this really short. There's two measures that I use right now. Number one, there is a um, uh, one of, I'm, I apologize. I cannot tell you where you find this exactly. Um, um, there's a, a, a young researcher that works for me that finds this, but 800 regulations have been uh, ended, rolled back. Uh, there's there's four or five legal terms that are used, uh, you know, rescinded or delayed, or uh, but 800 so far, which is a a huge number uh, when you look back in history. The other way to do this is to look at the number of pages in the federal register, because every new regulation must be published in a in a place called the federal register. And the decline in the number of pages this year versus last year is the largest one-year decline on record. And the way I would look at this is that every dropping one regulation frees up one entrepreneur at least uh, to be able to get something done that they couldn't have done before. And and don't hear me wrong. I believe in speed limits. I believe in stop signs. I'm not for, you know, let anybody do whatever they want. But I think we all know that the regulatory pendulum swings too far um, and it's now swinging uh, on occasion. And I believe it had and so, uh, so by those two measures, we've had a pretty significant uh, rollback in regulation, and I think that's a real positive for economic growth. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, thank you, Nathan, for your your call, and uh, you know, do call back again. We, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, we've got about three minutes left, so the conversation goes very quick with you, Brian. Um, oh my goodness! So let me maybe we talked a lot about the U.S. Uh, it's been a global market, and we I did start off by saying we we had you last time in your trip to Asia. Is that when you think about what you're learning on these trips to Asia? How do you view the global economy? Is one of the big risks North Korea, South Korea? Just any quick comments globally, and and if you want to talk about Asia. Specific that that could be sure, good. sure, yeah. Right now, you know, 
Uh, when Reagan won the presidency, I think 140 other countries cut tax rates. Um, we're now rolling back regulation. We're going to cut corporate taxes. Um, I, I'm pretty certain of that. Um, and what's happening in Europe with Macron and France, uh, Brexit, I, I think there's there's some better regulatory and tax and, and uh, uh, environments in Europe. Cheaper um, on a PE basis than the U.S. is. So I think there's going to be great returns. In fact, European stocks are up about 30 percent in the past year. So I and I think they will continue to catch up to the U.S. Uh, I love India. Uh, Modi is making some real positive changes. I think that's a sleeper uh, in investment over the next decade as those changes happen. And then I have been in uh, uh, Seoul uh, for uh, twice uh, in the past five months. And um, I, just real quick on this, I, I believe that, uh, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm not an expert in all this geopolitical stuff, but let me just say what I believe, and that is, it's pretty clear that uh, Kim Jong uh, has has isolated himself. Even the Chinese aren't as supportive of, of, of him as they have been. And uh, I think the pressure that the president has put on them uh, is, is going to force change. And it's going to be positive for the world. Uh, China doesn't want to go to war with us. Russia doesn't want to go to war with us. Um, uh, in the end, I think I, I believe there will be regime change in, in North Korea. It's best. It's what's best for the North Korean people. Um, even if China took over North Korea, they would be better off than they are today. And I'm not asking for the U.S. to take them over, but uh, and that will make that part of the world a lot safer of, of a place than it is today. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic about what's going to happen over there. I do not believe it's going to escalate into some kind of massive nuclear war. And I, I guess I could be wrong about that, but, but I, I think the odds of that are very, very small. Well, that's a, a good, positive way to end the discussion. Um, Brian Westbury, the chief economist at First Trust Advisors, uh, really one of the foremost market watchers, economists, good, good views. Brian, thanks for joining us on our program today. Jeremy, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Always a pleasure. Um, we've had a, a great conversation on the markets, the economy. We're going to have another great guest next week again, James Bullard, the president of the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. I'd like to thank our producer, Patricia Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. And you can also listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.